John Dravecki's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we were taking a look at a proposal that we could uh, understand uh, the sacred, that which causes the experience of sacredness, um, in terms of a transjective inexhaustibility, a kind of deep anagoge between the nothingness of your ever-evolving relevance realization and its mysterious depths and the no-thingness of a reality that is ultimately combinatorial explosive and dynamically changing itself. And that we can acknowledge the, the important role of the symbolic, the way it helps us to engage and activate the primordial aspects of religio and go through processes of re-exaptation causing new emergent abilities so that we're opening, as we're opening up the world, we are also opening up ourselves in response to that. But I cautioned against uh, confusing indispensability, your own or our collective at times, uh, indispensability with any kind of claims of metaphysical necessity or an absolute essence. And that was part of the, the larger critique that relevance can't have an absolute essence. That, and therefore, we shouldn't think of the sacred ultimately as a supernaturally endowed, absolutely essential form of relevance. So I then propose to you that part of what we saw the, at least the experience of sacredness doing was helping to facilitate the higher order relevance realization, the meta-realization uh, between homing us against the domicide, the meta-assimilation, but also causing us to confront the numinous, the meta-accommodation. And so the sacred is doing that. But I also proposed that we needed to look at this more deeply. We needed to look at how the sacred helps us address perennial problems. So that took us into opening up and becoming a little bit more um, analytic about the meaning crisis. There's two components uh, to the meaning crisis. There are the historical factors, which we traced in detail at the beginning uh, of the first half of the series. And now an issue that is now one we need to focus on, the perennial problems. Because in some sense, the experience of sacredness, the attempt to activate, accentuate, accelerate, articulate, and appreciate religio, should address our perennial problems. The perennial problems are, of course, perennial because the very machinery of religio that makes us adaptive also makes us perpetually vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Most cultures cultivate an ecology of psychotechnologies, typically in the form of a religion, for addressing the perennial problems. But that set of psychotechnologies has to be fitted into a legitimizing and sustaining worldview. 
in some sense, the psychotechnologies have to be integrated with sacredness. What's, of course, happening for us is, and we'll come back to this in more detail here, the historical factors have undermined that possibility for us, undermined the, the experience of sacredness, the, all of the ways in which we can cultivate an ecology of psychotechnologies for enhancing religio, because we do not have a worldview in which, within which that project of meaning-making, self-transcendence, the cultivation of wisdom, the affordance of higher states of consciousness, the realization of Gnosis, we do not have a worldview that legitimates or encourages that. And so people are forced, as I said, to cobble together uh, in a dangerously autodidactic fashion their own personal responses to perennial problems uh, without traditions, guidance, communities, well-worked-out um, sets, uh, like I say, of practices, well-vetted, well-developed. And so that means they're often bereft when they face the perennial problems. So responding to the meaning crisis has two components to it. And that's why I call it awakening from the meaning crisis, because it has not only the response of trying to rearticulate a new worldview in which the projects of enhancing religio, again, gets validation, is properly situated, encouraged, facilitated, legitimated, etc. But we also need to understand what the set of practices, the ecology of psychotechnology would look like that would allow us to address the perennial problems. And I'm proposing that the scientific account of re relevance realization and religio, and I've already tried to give you some allusions to that, we're going to come back to it uh, full force, will give us a way of articulating a worldview in which we can resituate the project of meaning making. And of course, the, the, the linchpin of that argument is the idea that at the core of the meaning making is relevance realization, and relevance realization be, can be given a naturalistic explanation. One that hopefully still does full justice uh, to the experience of sacredness. But I want to concentrate, as we began last time, on the perennial problems. Because ultimately, that's the final thing. If I come up with a historical response, and it does not actually afford the addressing of the perennial problems, it helps people to ameliorate and perhaps alleviate the perennial problems, then this project has failed. So we need to start discussing the perennial problems and developing this thesis more extensively that the very machinery that makes us adaptive makes us susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive patterns of behavior. So we talked about looking at some of the core features of religio, right? So we've got functional features. And here we have, of course, self-organization. And I tried to develop that very 
explicitly. It's not just vague self-organization. It's opponent processing, opponent processing that's making use of self-organizing criticality, relationship between compression, particularization, and other such trade-off relationships, etc. cetera. Uh, we've got right, self-identification, that process by which you're creating an identity, and you've got self-reflection, your ability to step back and reflect on your own cognition, which of course was made so powerfully present in the Axial Revolution with the advent of second-order thinking. We took a look at the structural. This has to do with the components of the agent arena relationship, the ways in which self is connected the world, self is connected <coughs> to self, and self is connected to others. Right? And then we looked at the developmental, and I sort of lay, left that as a placeholder because I just wanted to give a quick overview last time, but I wanted to go in and draw this together because what we've been talking about throughout the last few lectures is the idea that your cognition is inherently developmental. It functions by developing, it develops by functioning, it's an, right, so because it's inherently self-organizing, it develops, right, by functioning, it functions by developing, and this is qualitative development, right? What I mean is you get capacity for self-transcendence. There's not only an increase in w what you know, but it, uh, an increase in the kinds of things you can know, the kinds of things you can do, right? And this is ultimately some kind of process of optimization. So there's a developmental trajectory. And then what you can see right, is some of the problems we've already talked about, the parasitic processing. In the notes for this lecture, I will put uh, references to the previous lectures in which I have talked about these in detail. So if you, in order to avoid uh, useless repetition, you can go back and look at the presentation. Right, but this is, if you remember, you, there's a bad event and it spirals off and it gets this very complex uh, self-organizing system that takes on a life of its own, becomes very compelling, very adaptively resistant to our attempts at intervention, etc. Okay, so this is modal confusion. This is the right from, but very much you can also see it uh, being addressed by the Stoics. You can see it being addressed by Buddhism, as Bachelor argues. This is to get into confusion between the having and the being modes, the kind of I that you are. The, you know, are you in an I yet, I thou, etc. Self-reflection, last time we talked about this. This is the reflectiveness gap. This comes from the fact that what we can do is we can step back and look at our own uh, processing, and this affords us, this gap affords us uh, regaining our agency from the chaos of being the impulsive wanton, but 
when we open up the reflectiveness gap too much, uh, we get also a loss of agency, we get the tragedy of Hamlet, and of course some middling position is not the answer there, because at times you have to be highly reflective, at times you have to be highly immersed. How, how do we answer that? The problem here, right, it, with the self-world relationship is absurdity. As I said, this is the agent arena relationship. And we talked about absurdity here and made clear that all of the arguments for absurdity, like what happens a million years from now, it doesn't matter, I'm so small, I will die, none of these things actually are arguments that can uh, legitimately lead to a conclusion of absurdity because they're in many ways, and this was Nagel's point, they're, they're, they're just bad arguments, they're fallacious arguments. Now, Dismissing the arguments is not to dismiss the person who makes the argument. I hope I made that clear last time. If not, I'm, I'm trying to do that now. Because people are trying to articulate with these pseudo-arguments something real that is happening to them, something that is very important. So the arguments are after-the-fact expressions uh, rather than the generators. And the, the main thing here, and this of course goes into, right, you can see how all of this is our perspectival participatory uh, ways of being, ways of knowing. Okay, but what's here is a clash of perspectives. Right? It's a clash of perspectives. I mean, we did the example of Tom who's calling Susan and how in humor that clash of perspectives can be resolved usually by playing, uh, like equivocating between terms or meanings or getting people to make a connection they hadn't made before. But in absurdity, and, and I think there's like, I think there's a, a overlap like this, right, where you have humor as a resolvable clash of perspectives, and then you have absurdity here, right, and then there's a, an overlap zone, and like I said, there's a lot of humor. Uh, my, my prototypical example, and tells my age when I was growing up, is the, the humor of Monty Python in which, right, you get a, a lot of absurdity. But then it, you get what becomes irresolvable, clash, it's undermining religio in some way, uh, undermining your, your agency in some way, and that's sort of pure absurdity. Okay. Uh, self with self, this goes back to what we talked about with Tillich, right, and anxiety, uh, inner conflict, and what we need here, right, is to, again, think about the ways in which this is connected to, right, um, self-deception, uh, because the inner conflict, remember Plato, uh, often skews your salience landscape and makes you susceptible to bullshitting. I'll talk about bullshitting in connection to this uh, overall. Right? Of course, this is alienation. This is our inability to connect to other people, something that is often exacerbated through social media by the way these other per uh, perennial problems and self-deceptive behavior can be magnified in social media. Uh, so we, we can be modally confused and think by having a lot of connections, we're overcoming our alienation and loneliness, but of course that's not the case. Uh, we can uh, 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 exacerbate the social media uh, by falling into a sort of pretend, uh, pretended narrative and things like that. Okay, here we talked about right, existential inertia. This is when you need to move between worldviews, make, make a worldview viable that you're not currently in. We're going to talk a lot more about um, the work of Agnes uh, Callard and 
the aspiration, but the, the point here, and, and going back again to the seminal work of L.A. Paul, uh, but this is basically a need for anagoge. How do I anagoge my way out of this worldview into another worldview? <clears throat> and then, of course, there's existential ignorance, a point made salient by L.A. Paul and also picked up by uh, Agnes Callard in her book on aspiration, that Right? We can't sort of reason our way through this. We can't infer our way from a weaker logic to a stronger logic. We can't infer, we can't propositionally come up with the perspectival knowledge that we're lacking with the, with the participatory knowing that we do not currently possess and the identity that we are not currently uh, cultivating. So right, all of that, uh, of course, can come together and this was mythologized, and I mean that in a complimentary sense, right? Remember how I'm using mythos? This is myth mythologized by the Gnostics of existential entrapment. Feeling trapped. Now, a couple of things before we move towards starting to um, address this. This is analytic. This is for theoretical purposes that these things are being distinguished and laid out, right? It is often the case, as I've already tried to uh, uh, indicate, that these things are interacting and exacerbating each other, right? That, right, you can be experiencing absurdity and it, be, it can be really contributing to your existential inertia, right? You could be overthinking things and getting sort of stuck. And that it, right, might be also contributing to your existential ignorance. Or it might be contributing to your modal confusion because you can't remember the being mode because you're caught up in having a lot of thoughts and trying to have a lot of beliefs. Right? I, I'm not going to try and map this out because the, the, the permutations of the ways in which these interact and afford and Right, exacerbate uh, each other um, is very complex, which of course is why the perennial problems are uh, so pressing on people. Now what I want to try and do is to show you what I... I'm, I want to try and show you uh, how we can salvage from um, the legacy so many um, psychotechnologies uh, for addressing the meaning crisis. The reason why I'm, I'm hesitating is because, again, um, I'm, I'm, uh, this, this is genuine. I, I'm, there's a hubristic element here, and, um, and I, I'm not just trying to say, oh, you know, taking it from you and leaving that behind. I, I, but, I, I, but again, I, I'm trying to get a balance between respecting where we really are and what our situation really is and respecting all of the tremendous heritage and legacy that has been given to us. And trying to get that balance is always in my mind. It's very difficult. But, okay, I, I'm going to go through these each one, uh, first of all, I'm just going to uh, sort of name so you can get an overall schematic, and then I'll erase the board, and I'll talk about each one in greater detail. Okay? So, be patient, please. I'm asking for your patience. I'm just going to give some indications about how we address each one of these. 
schematically so you can see uh, on the board and then I'll step back and go through each one in more detail and then um, how they're integrated together and what's also missing from this in an important sense. So what I'm going to propose here is the way you deal with parasitic processing is, and this is why this is number one in some sense schematically, it's overarching. You've heard me uh, talk about it before, with the idea of a, an ecology of practices, an ecology of psychotechnology, right? What you want to do is you want to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system. See, parasitic processing is a very complex dynamical system, and if you try and do one-shot interventions, it just reconfigures itself. What you need is to cultivate a count uh, that you've internalized. It can't just be something you think about. It can't just be some, right, ideological structure. It has to actually be an active dynamical system in you. And so what you're going to do, and again, I'll come back to this in more detail, you're going to try and cultivate a counteractive dynamical system because that is how you will be able to respond to the dynamical systems of parasitic processing. And then I'm going to propose to you that a prototypical, by no means exclusive, so that's how I'm using it, but a prototypical example of this is the cultivation of the Eightfold Path in Buddhism, which is uh, very, very perspicaciously represented by an eight-spoked wheel. The integration, it, it revolves, it evolves, etc. So what we're looking for here is a counteractive dynamical system. Okay, modal confusion. We, we've already talked about this, and this is sati. Practices that are designed to invoke a deep remembrance of the being mode. Okay, the reflectiveness gap. You need the combination, the integration, the dynamic integration, not just a settled median point. You need the dynamic integration of immersion and creative flexibility. We know a state that does that. We're going to come back to this. But that's the flow state. You need to be cultivating the flow state in, in important ways. Okay, the clash of perspectives. This is going to take, again, so this, what I put on the board right now initially, is going to seem like what? Uh, so again, give, give me some time. I'm just going to put it on here. Uh, this is what Spinoza in, in the West called Scientia Intuitiva, or what in, uh, in Buddhism in the East refers to as Prajna. This is a state, right, in which you get the deep interpenetration of the perspectives. Right? So I'm just going to put up here, uh, and you, you're like, wow, what does that mean how you do that? Uh, Scientia intuitiva, prajna. But if you remember, just to foreshadow it, right? we talked about I can scale down, I can scale up, and then I can get this state of non-duality that is simultaneously scaling up and scaling down. And that actually alleviates the clash of perspectives. So we'll come back to this. Okay, so anxiety. This is inner dialogue. So this is to pick up, right, um, the idea of internalizing the sage. Right, as the child is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. I want to, like, the way, so an exemplary example of this is, that, you know, the Christians, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or the Buddhists, you have to realize your Buddha nature. Or the Stoics, I have to internalize Socrates. And again, if you turn these into ideas to be believed rather than, you know, practices that are, have actually been 
um, internalized and are, 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 are integrated into your, uh, the development of your identity, then you're not hearing what I'm saying. Okay, so alienation. I haven't talked as much about this, uh, but I'm going to come back to this more. Uh, this is to cultivate what Turner and other people call communitas. This is the sense of connectedness to other. And part of that is to try and recover what we had in Platonic dialogue. And what's happening right now is a whole movement called authentic discourse. I'm going to talk a lot more about that. The authentic discourse movement, right? Authentic discourse movement. But we just need authentic discourse here. Um, something like what we had in Platonic dialogue, um, something like therapy, sort of both beyond. I'll come back to that uh, because this is a primary way of doing this. I gave you an extended argument uh, for how you respond to existential entrapment. Um, and of course, this is uh, gnosis. And that um, this gnosis is going to have a connection to higher states of consciousness. Okay. There's something that's missing, right? Um, and What's missing is we need, of course, a, an overall framing of these things. That they, the, the way we're pursuing all of these and the way we're trying to integrate them together, right? I'll put, I'll put it here because I ran out of board on that side. All of this has to be within a wisdom framing. We're going to talk more explicitly. We're going to devote quite a bit of time to try and get at what can we now think about wisdom, given all the current uh, work within psychology and cognitive science and even neuroscience on wisdom. Right? Because of, throughout all of this, we have to have a, we have to have a cognitive style in which the amelioration of self-deception and the affordance of self-optimization are paramount. Okay? So, I want to go through each one of these in more detail. Um, this is the overarching structure and then trying to, to, to bring it together. What is it I'm proposing to you? And, see, and here's where my concern about hubris um, is here, although I think there's a legitimate point I'm making. I'm trying to argue for a way in which we can reverse engineer enlightenment. Instead of keeping enlightenment as an obscure state surrounded by mystique and nostalgia, we need an account that recognizes what that mystique pointed to but exaggerates, which is the difficulty of enlightenment. Right? But ultimately, if we have a kind of being, an ecology, of psychotechnology that reliably and systematically, individually and collectively, allows us to address the perennial problems, I'm going to propose to you that that's what we should call enlightenment. If enlightenment is something above and beyond that, then I don't know what, what its value is. And it, if enlightenment is not directed towards this, I would say it is uh, not something of value. So I'm going to propose to you that 
insofar as we can give using the theoretical tools we've cultivated together, relevance, realization, etc. Insofar as we can, you know, the work we've done on mindfulness, the work we've done on flow, right, all of it. Insofar as we can give an account of this in terms that are alt ultimately naturalistic, that can be subject to scientific investigation, we will have, and, and this is, is this the final sort of challenge to the division given to us in the Enlightenment? We will have a scientific theory of in enlightenment and, and what it can mean for us. All right. So let's talk about some of these. I'll talk about it at length because they're more novel. Others I'll, I'll talk about more briefly because there's an extended discussion of them. So again, let's start with this notion of dealing with parasitic processing, which is an overarching uh, thing. And the idea here is, as I said, to cultivate a set of practices, and that's what you have with something like the Eightfold Path, where you're trying to, remember all of these, you know, right aspiration, right mindfulness, right concentration, etc. Remember that the right is not moral righteousness, the right is right-handedness, it's dexterity. And now to use language that we've developed, it's right-fittedness, it's optimal fittedness, it's enhanced relevance realization within each one of these. And what you have, right, is a set of practices that are interdependent with each other, mutually supporting, and self-rolling, becoming a self-rolling wheel. And if I have a set of practices that can take on a life of its own, right, you, have, you have the metaphors, right, in Buddhism, of you, like where you enter the stream, it takes on a life of its own. And initially what I'm doing, right, is I'm cultivating this practice and this practice and this practice, and I've got sort of, but then they start to, right, implicitly interact, reinforce, develop, and it starts to become a counteractive dynamical system in me. The, the Buddha told a famous parable about how to understand this. He, he talks about the goldsmith. Uh, and the gold is something inherently valuable, and you should think of your mind as something inherently valuable. Uh, right? And he says, okay, so take a look at the goldsmith. The goldsmith just looks at the gold, no change is wrought. So if you're just sort of doing meditation and reflecting, nothing happens, right? The goldsmith has to heat up the gold, right? There has to be this right effort, the energy put in, maybe something like flow, right? But if the goldsmith just heats up the gold, the gold just melts and goes away, right? And then also there has to be the shaping, right? There, there has to be the reconfiguration, there has to be the cultivation of new skills, new abilities, new virtues. If you just hammer the gold, you'll, you'll smash it and wreck it. If you just heat it, it will melt. If you just look at it, you won't notice its imperfections. You'll, sorry, you, you, you will do nothing but notice its imperfections, uh, but nothing will change. So I need to look in order to notice, but I need to balance that, integrate that dynamically with heating and with, with, with hammering. And, and, and notice what I'm doing. I, I'm creating this higher order skill of being a smith by getting a set of practices 
that have a complementary relationship to them. Each one has strengths and weaknesses, and the strengths and weaknesses are fitted together, so you get something overall that can produce something that the individual skills can't do. So by getting this fluid ecology of looking, of heating, and of shaping, then the gold becomes well-shaped, and it becomes, as he says, wieldly. You can wield it very well. You can, it fits your hand and extends your capacity so well. So what you're getting there, right, is a, 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 the strong recommendation for looking at this as, you know, cultivating an ecology of practices, getting sets of practices, sets of psychotechnologies that have complementary relationships to each other, organizing them together, right, and, and we do this all the time. We, 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 const we create constellations of lower order skills and techniques to build higher order skills and techniques, but we build it as a dynamical system, a counteractive dynamical system that can operate in many ways on many levels of our cognition and our consciousness and our being. So the way to deal with parasitic processing is to cultivate a counteractive dynamical system. And this is why this is an overarching thing. So modal confusion, we've already talked about this. We've already talked about the way in which uh, mindfulness practices and other practices like that can be drawn from stoicism, like the view from the above, or objective seeing, can help us to remember sati, the being mode. Again, not as an idea, not as a belief, but as an existential mode that we can reliably reactivate and re-enter into in a viable and enriching manner. Okay, the reflectiveness gap and flow. Okay. So, if I were to just speak this lecture impulsively, wantonly, just, ah, it'll become chaotic, right? It'll tend to, right, uh, probably fall into self-contradiction. It will be confused and therefore confusing. But if I'm constantly stepping back and reflecting on what I'm saying and engaging in self-criticism and then thinking, I, I, I'll also, I'll choke, right? So what do I do? Well, I try to get into the flow state. Because the flow state is a state in which I am both, and Velman, by the way, argues for something very similar. He proposes Taoism, uh, and Taoism as a solution to the reflectiveness gap. Uh, and of course, as I've argued, Taoism is basically the religion of flow in many ways. The yin and yang, the out and the in, right? The making frame and breaking frame, etc. So what you're trying to do is set up the practices that will afford flow, set up the conditions that will afford flow, and remember we talked about the, the right kinds of conditions, and also, and this is where we're gonna have to come back to wisdom, wisely cultivate your flow. Where and when and in what domains are you learning to flow? So I'm trying to get into the flow state here that will keep me sort of immersed and engaged uh, with the material, but also uh, make me hopefully uh, very sort of flexible um, and capable when needed. I don't mean to be self-congratulatory, but you know, where, where it's needed, hopefully insightful, 
uh, that there is that this is not just mechanical, that there's an element uh, of sort of, well, a flow to it, uh, almost like jazz, jazz with concepts uh, and jazz with argumentation. Okay, so let's come back to absurdity and come back to prajna. I'll talk about this again. We did talk about this before, but I want to remind you of it and that you are very capable of this uh, because your cognition is capable because of the way attention works. Because attention, I've put it up multiple times, right? The cat and other things. Your attention is simultaneously bottom up from the features and top down from the gestalt, right? And your attention, right, it, right the way you are related to the world is one in which the world and you can be co-creating. This is actually something that Spinoza talks quite a bit about in the ethics, um, the, how your experience is co-created by the, by, by the body and by the world. So, if you remember, Spinoza talks about this idea, right, when you're reading a, an argument, and his whole book, The Ethics, is an attempt to bring back blessedness and a sense of, I would argue, sacredness within a Cartesian scientific worldview. That's what's called the ethics. It means ethics in the older sense of becoming the best person leading the best kind of life, not just doing the morally correct thing. <clears throat> but Spinoza talks about this kind of knowing. And, and what I realized when I was reading the ethics, well, studying the ethics, you have to almost do Lectio Divina with the ethics. You have to read it. You have to really let it soak into you. You have to try and get that worldview attuned. You have to, what's it like to see the world as Spinoza did? So you have to sort of study and practice the ethics. So it's an extended period. And then he talks about this, and then I realized that the ethics was actually designed to do this. You have this tremendously tight logical structure, but the logical structure is trying to afford what he called scientia intuitiva, this sort of deeply intuitive knowing. Um, and what he means by that is that you've got this tremendous argument that reaches up to the sort of the largest scale of reality, right? But there's individual premises along the way. And the idea here is, th here's the analogy. So the premise is like the letter. The premises are like the letters, right? And the, o the whole, the argument of arguments, all the arguments constellated together. So I I'm going to call this the meta-argument, the arguments of argument, right? So these go up into arguments, right? And then the arguments, right? go up into meta, the, the meta-argument, and this, of course, is like, you know, the, through words into sentences kind of thing. And remember, we talked about how your attention is multiply layered in this way. And what can happen is, if you practice the ethics, you get to a place where you see the whole of the argument in each, the meta-argument in each premise, and you see how each premise and each argument fit into and contribute to the whole. Just like you're seeing the words in terms of the sentence and the letters in terms of the words, right? And it's simultaneously bottom up and top down in a completely interpenetrating fashion. And what you get is you get a cosmic perspective that is, right, interpenetrating with the perspective of your individual moment of thought. 
not scanty unto Ativa. There's a right. The, 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 there is a complete interleaving of the perspectival knowing. The Buddhists talk about something similar to this, prajna, a, 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 a kind of self-liberating state of wisdom, and it's a state um, in which, you know, as D.T. Suzuki says, you're, you're sort of simultaneously looking as deeply in as you can and simultaneously looking out as deeply as you can. And he quotes Eckhart, a Christian Neoplatonist, um, as a way of explaining this. You know, the, the, this, the eye by which I see God is the same eye by which God sees me. So the, 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 the perspective that reaches out and upwards to what's ultimate is the same as the perspective that is coming deeply into, uh, into me. And what you get, right, is you practice you practice sort of scaling down as deeply as you possibly can towards something like the pure consciousness event and scaling down. And you practice scaling up to this sense of sort of profound resonant at one minute with everything. And then what happens is you get, I mean, when in practice you're off, you, you're, you, you are alternating between them. But then, as I mentioned, what eventually happens is you get non-duality. You are simultaneously as deeply in and as deeply down, sorry for these metaphors, as you can be, but as I said, they're often indispensable. You're simultaneously as deeply down and as deeply in and as simultaneously as out and as up as you can be. The, you're sort of at m maximal breaking frame, maximal, so, uh, make, sorry, maximal breaking frame and maximal making frame and they are optimally dynamically integrated like in the like they are in the in right sort of the most optimal profound insight you can have so that state is a place that addresses absurdity and you say but it doesn't answer any of the arguments for absurdity but that's the point there is no argumentative response to absurdity because the arguments that are supposed to be generating absurdity don't generate absurdity they're after the fact expressions of absurdity what drives absurdity is perspectival clash and if you can reliably realize a state in which you overcome the perspectival clash and remember, you can o overcome lower-order perspectival clash in humor. And humor is, uh, has at the core of it a kind of insight and a kind of joy in that insight. You can have something like that. It's, there's a continuum. You can have the overcoming of the perspectival clash with this prajnik state of non-duality that carries with it a kind of joy, a kind of insight, a kind of sciencia intuitiva, a deep intuitive knowing. And so, that is very doable for us. So, anxiety. So what anxiety is about, right, is there's a, a nebulous sense that, right, something is wrong and it's connected to inner conflict. Well, 
you know, we see both. We see this in Christianity, the inner conflict, uh, Paul. We see it in Plato, in the inner conflict. Uh, there's different centers working according to different goals, and they're at war with each other, and, and we suffer. And it's a, a, it's, a, it's a dramatic sense of threat. But it has no specific target, of course, as fear does, because, of course, anxiety, the threat is endemic to you. So no matter where you go, you're sensing the threat, but there's nothing that the threat uh, can particularly attach to because the threat has to do with your inner, the state of being at war within yourself. So we see across the traditions the idea of internalizing the sage to create an inner dialogue that helps to coordinate the various centers, gets them to talk to each other. And I think this is something where cognitive science can actually do give us tremendous help. There is, we've had a lot of increase in our knowledge of the various different areas of cognition, uh, even different kinds of centers processing in the brain, and how they work and how they're op operating. And what we need is, right, an internalized representation, a model, a role model, and a role is a way of taking on a new identity, right? We need a role model for how we can engage in dialogue. And the proposal here, which is of course the platonic proposal we already saw, that if I can internalize my capacity and, 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 and developed by the Stoics, my capacity to interact with the sage, eventually I get that ability that I have only with the sage, I can have it with myself, within myself, and it means therefore that it becomes part of my metacognitive machinery, the way I dialogue with myself and get the various aspects of myself, the various centers to uh, dialogue with each other. And you can see various uh, versions of this. You can see Jung's use of active imagination as a way of trying to create an inner dialogue between different centers uh, of the psyche. Right? You can see uh, practices like Lectio Divina where I am reading the text and I am trying to get the text to speak to me is also allowing aspects of the different aspects of the psyche to talk to each other through the text. So there is a, a lot we can do. So as I mentioned to you, the process of identification where you're identifying with something like the, the sage, right? Obviously it's makes use of our capacity for internalizing the perspective of others, but it also requires our, what Polanyi called the capacity for indwelling, right? So remember indwelling is when I'm, I'm perceiving through the pen, I'm indwelling it. So you not only have to internalize the sage, but you have to indwell the sage, you have to practice right, and that fits in with other things, to practice trying to, in, what does it look like, right, what is it like to see things the way the sage does? You have to seriously play at being the sage without pretense or arrogance or inflation. That's why wisdom is going to matter to all of this, 
right? So I practice indwelling the sage, right? And yeah, you know, and, and people like, what would Socrates do? What would Aristotle do? What would Jesus do, right? And you have to regularly practice. So you practice in dwelling, and then you practice internalizing. And you practice in dwelling, and then you practice internalizing, right? And that is how you basically start to afford the internalization of the sage and the creation of your ability as Antisthenes said what he learned from Socrates so long ago, to converse with yourself, to, get, to enter into something like platonic dialogue with yourself. All right. What about alienation? So alienation takes us towards something talked about by Emile Durkheim and Victor Turner and others, communitas. Communitas is what you feel when you're watching with other people, what, what's happened recently, the raptors, and everybody was gathered together, and we have shared attention, and we are getting in sync together, and we have that sense of communing and communicating with each other, and there is a shared spirit amongst us all. That's communitas. Communitas. Communitas, right, is basically a way of getting collective flow going. But it's also something else. It's a collective flow in which we feel like there is real communication between people and something deeper. There's real communion. There's a sense of participating in a shared identity of some kind. So this has to be with, looked, th this has to do with sort of taking a, a careful look at our, our huh, careful look at the way in which our practices of communication and communing have been so undermined by bullshitting and um, modal confusion and, and an adversarial. Uh, uh, political culture, etc. And so, what's been happening, and, and as I said, part of the gift of the video series is uh, I've gotten to meet more and more people who are trying to do this. Um, they're, they're trying to, they're putting real time and talent um, into cultivating um, individual and communal responses to the meeting crisis. So I've got to uh, interact with, uh, for example, Peter Lindbergh, who's been introducing me to uh, authentic discourse, authentic relating uh, practices. I will talk a little bit about this in a minute. Um, uh, and then, I, uh, for example, I've got to meet uh, and have some interesting dialogue. The, in, the one interview, uh, not one interview, sort of one dialogue with him is out, and there's another one coming. Um, because what Jordan Hall is trying to do is he's trying to do two things in an integrated fashion. I see him trying to do. He's trying to free communication from the, the, the cultural grammar that has got us where we are. 
In that sense, he's trying to respond deeply to the history, not in theory, but in the actual practice. And, and that is bound up with, as my argument has tried to show, that is bound up with the project of trying to re-access in a powerful and perspicacious manner these other kinds of knowing and that making our communication and our communion not just a matter of propositional exchange or conflict, but trying to tap into right, the underlying procedural knowing and how that procedural knowing is dependent on the underlying perspectival situational awareness, the perspectival knowing, and how that is ultimately dependent on the participatory process of our ongoing evolving attunement from which the agent and the arena co-emerge. And so I see him trying to do that. I see him trying to create a way in which we can get what he calls coherence, a kind of communitas, I would say, that is directed towards engaging the collective intelligence of distributed cognition, and remember that most of our real-world problem-solving, contrary to the bullshit we tell ourselves about how we're self-made individuals, most of our problem-solving is done in concert, serious play, concert music, is done in concert with other people. And so what he is trying to do is create, a, he extends towards right, a state called coherence in which we are creating uh, um, a kind of communicast that is marshalling distributed cognition and its collective intelligence for simultaneously freeing us from the ways in which we are boxed in like the nine doc problem by our historical cultural cognitive grammar, access the other kinds of knowing and bring that to bear on the problems that we are facing. So, I want to talk a little bit, I'll just introduce the idea. There's a book, I'm uh, uh, Cohering the Integral We Space, Enabling Collective Emergence, Wisdom, and Healing in Groups. I've gone to um, a circling practice um, already. I, I'm not an expert in it. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to become one. I want, I, I want to take it, seri I take it seriously. Um, so I'm only gesturing towards it. But it is a communal practice in which um, this is my best way of trying to explain it to you. You're engaging in something like share, you're engaging in a mindfulness practice, something like platonic dialogue, and you're creating something like a collective flow state so that what emerges, right, is a dynamical system. And as I've, uh, I basically have been proposing throughout this, the last few lectures, that the word spirit is basically pointing towards dynamical systems that right, are evolving. We create a dynamical system that gives people the resources to address uh, their capacity for being in touch with themselves and each other. It's not therapy, although it overlaps with some of the, the Gnosis in therapy as well. You know this. You know that you, it, when things are right and you get in sync with another person or another group of people, there's a, and we talked about this with platonic dialogue, something emerges. There's a collective, right, that emerges there that takes your cognition and everybody else's in places that you can't go individually. You participate in that but you don't make it. You're not just a passive re recipient of it. You're not just a patient of it, right? 
You're participating in it. And so I, I want to learn more about this, but w there is a growing, and, and this is this, the, 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 the circling practice overlaps uh, with other practices that uh, Peter and I are learning about. Um, uh, where you're, uh, Peter talks about you know, a, a process he calls the anti-debate, where we turn adversarial debating, we have techniques for turning it into authentic relating, where we're trying to get insight rather than victory in our, uh, our debating processes. There's, there's lots of books coming out on this, like you know, Verbal Aikido and Verbal Judo. So there is the beginning of a whole set of practices for bringing about authentic discourse that can really address uh, the issues of alienation. Okay. Now, of course, as I said, the response to existential entrapment is Gnosis, and we had extended uh, discussion about that and its interconnection with higher states of consciousness. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about that, that at great length. Please go back and look at that, that Gnosis. But what I would say is that Gnosis seems to need, and you see this with Jeep form, and you see this in therapy, it needs that open-ended mythos that the Gnostics talked about. I'm not, talk I'm not advocating their particular mythos. I'm not saying their metaphysics is correct, but that, that transgressive, the open-ended, ongoing right, symbol, the ongoing mythos. These seem to be uh, needed uh, for the cultivation of Gnosis, and so I would recommend uh, that to you. So what I want to do next time is come back and put this all together, what it looks like, and then start talking about the overall framing of this, the way we frame how we cultivate the individual psychotechnologies, the individual practices, and how we also how we constellate the ecology of those uh, in a state of enlightenment within a wisdom framing. Thank you very much for your time and attention.